Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Helen Holliman, Editor-in-Chief of Munchies, and welcome back to the latest installment of Munchies, the podcast. If you're just tuning in, we've been hanging out in Austin over the last few episodes, exploring what's left of old Austin and digging into the booming city that it's becoming. On the latest episode, I'm sitting down with Michael Twitty, one of the most important living African-American culinary historians today. I first met Michael Twitty in North Carolina, where I was writing a profile of his work, which at the time was focused on recreating the Southern Antebellum Kitchen. Twitty dressed in 19th century period attire as a slave, recreating historically accurate meals made by the enslaved cooks at plantations. He did this to educate his dinner guests about the underrepresented side of Southern food's diverse history. He called it the Southern Discomfort Tour. Since then, he's been a very busy guy, working on a new book called The Cooking Gene, which traces his culinary roots in the South, tracking his genetic history to find lost family members and discover surprising truths about his identity and the history of Southern food. So we actually recorded this episode two months ago, when Twitty wrote an open letter to Sean Brock, one of the most lauded Southern chefs in the U.S., In his open letter, he addressed the racial tensions of the current Charleston food scene and the lack of celebrated black chefs in a city that's exploding with restaurants rooted in African-American culinary traditions. I sat down with Michael to discuss what happened when he raised those concerns to Sean Brock, as well as to chat about his new book, The Cooking Gene. All right, so... uh, So... Michael, I first heard about you many moons ago. Obviously, you wrote an open letter to Paula Dean. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a lot of things since then, but kind of thinking about most recently, um, you wrote an open letter to Sean Brock. Yeah. Um, Sean Brock is, you know, someone who I have had um, a very public push-pull passive-aggressive relationship with and I think it's because I have been interested in challenging um, the media darling image of Sean Brock because I feel like on his shoulders has been put the entire future of Southern food and for me just like with the Paula Dean piece the presence the present and the future of Southern food doesn't just rely on white chefs, white cooks, white media personalities. Um, And the fact that we're even allowing that narrative to dominate is problematic. Um, Based on a couple of recent run-ins with the Charleston Food Press, um, which is an all-white institution, um, that much I can say with, with complete accuracy, Um, I felt it was important to just go directly to the source, talk to him, and make an effort at dialogue. Because I think that um, people have often said to me, well, you guys have a lot in common. 
You guys have a lot of things you could be doing together, working together, and I agree on that. But the first step is actually making the attempt to to talk. And one of the problems is that we have had in the past, um, we have had those opportunities to talk, but, you know, he admitted, I should have reached out to you a long time ago when we had the opportunity and we were going to do some things, and I said, yeah. But um, that part is less important to me than actually um, forging a new path forward. Because ultimately, end of the day, it's not about my ego or paying homage to me and what I do or what he does, et cetera. It's about can we make the community overall better and can we improve things for black folks in the low country, black folks in Charleston and Savannah. Um, can we can we bring food justice and culinary justice to those chefs and activists in those communities who are trying to make a difference? I could care less about whether his feelings or my feelings are hurt or not. Um, at the end of the day, I want the prosperity of the Charleston food scene to extend itself to the people who um, are not benefiting from all of the um, the money, the empowerment, the opportunity, um, the accolades. I mean, we have a lot of serious problems in that community and around that community. And I think one of the things that's come up during this whole debate is that the classic um, situation where you go, white Southerners go, everything is satisfactual. And I'm deliberately quoting Song of the South, right? And then black folks are like, no, it's not. But we haven't told you it's not because that's impolite in our Southern code of race. We don't talk about race in public. We're very polite. And then you think, oh, our neighbors love us. Well, this is after Walter Scott was murdered by that cop. This is after nine people were murdered in Mother Emanuel. And because you saw people hug each other and cry, they gave the false impression of a united Charleston. And the reality is the past couple of trips that I've taken there, um, the past uh, three months, I've met over, men talked to over 20 people, uh, black Charlestonians who were just like, no, we're furious. This is on top of all the things that we're losing, the gentrification, on top of the fact that we don't get to enjoy any of the fruits of what's going on the other side of the tracks in Charleston, and now this, we're furious, but we have no outlet for expressing that, not less, less about rage, but more like, where, how, we make, how we make progress, where this solution's coming from. So thinking about Charleston as a whole, you know, it's definitely a popular place you'll see in travel magazines and food magazines, like the hottest, you know, culinary dining location right now. Right. And when we look back on the slave trade, like that is where, what's the percentage? Like 40%, four out of every 10 African-Americans you've ever seen in your life have an ancestor who basically walked those streets to the two market street to the slave auctions there and was sold away so this is like the it's it's the heart and soul of where it all began in the u.s so to speak so no spot is that dramatic in terms of being the entrepot for black america when we think about like the gullah people and the history that's there you know looking beyond just opening up a conversation between you and a very well-known chef like what does it take beyond just that do you think to start pushing that conversation further in a real way because when we think about the power of the media you know we're sitting here writing about 
you know, oh, go here and try this food. But like, how can people actually actively push that forward to make that change happen? Well, I think first thing people understand is that the Gullah Geechee community is very unique and very special. Number one, for several hundred years, they were divided from everybody else by language, not just culture and, and what we call race, which to me is race is an illusion. Food is reality. It's a very spiritual, religious community, and they have been separate from white people by design. You know, we even make the joke among um, black folks who said that the mosquito was the black man's best friend in the sea islands. And we make that joke, and it's very deep because we make that joke about, you know, phenotype because you see a lot of people who are much darker, who have less European ancestry, and we say that the mosquito was the black woman's best friend because it kept the overseer and the mass away from her. But that tells you something. It tells you about tight-knit families that were African in origin that passed down where they came from. You know, I used to go down to John's school in John's Island and other places, and I told the kids, I said, you know, the difference between you and a kid in, in Bedford-Stuy, the kid from Bedford-Stuy don't know where he comes from. But you can look out on that water and know where you come from. Your grandmother told you where you come from. You have no excuses for an identity crisis because you are where it happened. And you know you have the language, you have the food, you have everything that you need to build on. And so I think it's an issue of making sure that that community understands, you know, you have something to build on and to protect. And this is how we do it. We don't create community scholars, people who it's not just one leader. It has to be multiple people taking up multiple parts of the tradition. Somebody has to focus on just net making. Somebody has to focus on how do we teach 20, 30 youths how to do that. Somebody has to focus on legal issues and land zoning and making sure that every bit of beachfront um, fishing territory becomes a golf course or a private beach or a resort. I mean, that's the source of people's food, you know, the ocean itself. So people have to, you know, it's a, this is a multi-tiered problem. And it takes everybody getting a small piece of the legal, the intellectual, um, the cultural parts. Um, Now, when I said that the community is separate, remember, this is from the 18th century, they have been separate, a separate group of people. And what that means is that um, and as much as the Gullah Geechee culture has been been painted as a, um, a colorful addition to Charleston life, That's a very powerful statement on um, black self-reliance and black separatism in a way. They didn't want anything to do with these people. They wanted to be able to live their lives in a way that most African-Americans were not privileged to do because of environment, of culture, and of laws that negotiated how, quote-unquote, races interacted. Whereas for them, they were mostly separate communities. And that separateness... Has, is also kind of a nationalistic identity. People need to understand that. So it's not our black neighbors. No, these are our Gullah Geechee neighbors who feel real, a strong attachments to the land, who feel strong attachments to the waterways, who feel strong attachments to a separate cultural identity. So when you come at them, you can't come at them just you know with, with the generic sort of typical black-white Southern relations response. You have to remember, these are folks who, even if you're black, if you're an outsider, you have to prove yourself before you come into those communities. You can't just roll up because they know who's who. 
They know who's from where. And they know whose heart is real. So I feel like a lot of people today, it's 2016. We always say things like, it's 2016. The past is the past. But I feel like with the work that you're doing, you have to go to the past to get Mm -hmm. to the future. Um, Since we last saw each other, talk about the book that you're working on and what it's taking, you know, the turn that it's actually taken since you began the project. Mm -hmm. So let's see. Um, This book... And this project has been, it's funny because I remember I, th- I may have even told you before that, you know, I thought it was going to be like this Julie and Julia moment. Right? I was going to, you know. It's the funniest reference. Talk you to, you know, I was going to, I seriously, I went, I went to the movie and I, I was excited to see a movie about food and excited to see Meryl Streep play Julia Child and the little white girl, Amy, whatever her name is. She was doing some stuff and I was like, oh, this is going to be cute. It's going to be wonderful. And I sat in the theater. I mean, I don't really go to a lot of movies. But I sat in the theater, and I was, like, you know, inspired. I was excited. And I haven't felt that way in a long time. And I immediately, I started Afro-Culinaria very shortly after that. I was like, if she could do it, I could do it, right? <laughs> um, not knowing how hard it is and facing a lot of similar issues that, that um, the real um, Julie faced and faces as a food writer. Um, but I thought this project was going to be a neatly wrapped. I was going to get all the answers in a year. Like, it was just going to fly at me, and it was going to be awesome, and I was going to know where I came from in Africa, and I was going to meet all these cousins from around the world, and it was going to be great, and prepackaged, and I would know who I was. No. Uh, the, book has, the book has grown with me. The book has grown from the time the project was seeded. It's, it's grown from the time I was little. You know, listening to stories and then processing them and then forgetting half of them and then remembering and all of that kind of contraction and expansion. And now it's like with every single DNA test, with every single, um, you know, note from a new family member, this project has grown substantially and I see the world in a very different way. Um, I'm meeting more and more people who I can actually say are genetic relatives. And with the weird part, the eerie part is that there are often people who I've talked to a lot or talked to in the past and all of a sudden I find out. So there's a very mystical part of this project. And what I hope it will do is a lot of people have asked me, is it a cookbook? And I'm like, no, that'll, that'll come eventually. The next couple of years, that will be a reality. But I don't want people to get, I want people to understand this isn't just, you know, mm-hmm, great comfort food from another black guy. You know, big black guy with comfort food. Yay, and it's southern, and mm, that sounds wonderful, and that's great. No, I don't want them to focus on that. I want them to focus on the hard work that an African-American who wants to be involved in historic interpretation, wants to be a chef, has to go through to get to the bottom of where they come from and who they are and how they relate to other people. Um, for some people, that may not be the most thrilling story, but I don't think people understand this. There are millions of African Americans who have lived and died. You know, not Afro Caribbeans, not Africans, African Americans. You know, black people of the United States who have that same trajectory of history. 
and not one of them to date has ever done what I'm doing. And quite frankly, very few American culinarians of any ethnic background have ever done what I'm doing to sort of go back to even have an inkling, a couple of paragraphs on my earliest genetic roots in East Africa, who those were those lines came from what they were doing, where they went to talking about how my European native and African ancestors sort of like pushed towards this moment and how that made me. Nobody's done that. And that's why it was so thrilling for me to even start this project and see it to its logical conclusion, sort of trace out where an American cook comes from, how meal by meal, um, moment by moment, we were brought to this now. Since you started it, I mean, what's one moment where you just stopped and said, oh, my holy shit, you know, this is crazy? Uh, You know what? That was when I realized that when we talk about brother and sister all the time as black people, and we try to reach out across the lines, across diasporic lines, Africa, Caribbean, America. When I started, you know, in a lot of these genetic tests, you see relatives from all around the world and you see people who, you know, it's even deeper when somebody has all four grandparents born in a country, which kind of tells you that they are from another place. They're not part African-American. That might be the link. I met a woman who um, is Haitian and she shares genetic um, material with my uh, grandfather. At that moment, I realized, oh, man, somebody got put on a boat. And someone else got put on a boat. One of those boats went to Haiti. Another boat went to South Carolina. And a couple hundred years later, I'm able to look at that on a page, on a computer page, and know that when I see Guyana and Brazil and Puerto Rico, all the big ones were there. Jamaica. I had people who shared genetic ancestry with me across every single major part of the Americas where Africans landed. And it was like, to me, that was even deeper than like finding people who were like separated by slavery here. Because then it was just like, you could see, you could see the moment where, you know, brother and sister or brother and brother are split up. And they never see each other again. But one of them survives in Haiti. One of them survives in South Carolina. And they have children, and they have children, and they have children. And one day they swab their cheeks, and they find out that, yeah, this was real. This started on the coast of Benin in West Africa, you know, where 1.1 million people were exiled from the continent based on, you know, uh, Greed, you know, basically. African elites and European elites exchanging trinkets for human lives. And that's a really, and it brings you back to the reality of modern day slavery. So it's made me 10 times more empathetic when we talk about um, unfair practices in food, 10 times more empathetic when you talk about slavery in the modern world and how many ways it manifests, and 10 times more empathetic in human trafficking. So for me, it really has gone beyond just sort of like that moment of wow, which was, you know, stunning. And when you meet people, African cousins, and, you, and the, the computer is telling you, you're seven generations removed. Here is your African cousin. 
here is their ethnic group. You know. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, yeah, this is real. You know, these are really your people. You know, and everything that you ever thought, every every intuition you ever had was real and true. And then you meet your white cousins and you go, okay, so we're, we're related, we're relatives. And most of them have been very, very, very open to me. And um, like I said, nine times out of 10, 90% of the time, they are more than willing to talk with me and relate to me and, you know, face up to their historical realities. We, 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 we move on it. And they realize that for them to tell me their stories is part of telling me my history, history that we didn't get as a black family. They have. And so um, that's cool. But one, one more thing I want to say about that is that, you know, when I saw that I was part Italian or Middle Eastern or, you know, um, Central Asian and Southeast Asian, probably by way of Madagascar, the slave trade through Madagascar, et cetera. It, it, it really sort of, in Spain and Portugal, it really opened up my mind to the fact that, you know, people used to really be kind of pissy about, well, you can't be everything. Why do they want me in a box? You know, why did they want me to stay in one little corner to, to be labeled, to be, you know, curtailed? when I think it's a great opportunity for any human being to see just how connected they are to the rest of the human race. Um, but I had to think about that. I had to reverse, go back and smack some faces because I was just like, let me get out of my cast iron skillet and knock some people out of the head. Because honestly, that's what we want. You know, when African-Americans talk about the particular, the particularism of being black, we're reminded of universality. It's the first thing people hit us with. Well, we're all human beings. All lives matter. Shut that up. Right. But when everybody else brings a protexia, we respect that. No, this is a Western world. No, this is this is this is woman's business. This is gay business. Um, and I say that guys as a gay black Jewish man. So don't don't get it twisted. But <laughs> but everybody else is allowed their sort of like space except for us. We're always reminded. No, no, no. We're all human. We're all the same until. And that's what I'm saying. You know, in my body is are the genes of people from every corner of the globe. And I'm connected with them. And I feel spectacular about it. I always like to tell people the story of when I came to Asheville and watched you put on this amazing dinner. And the most interesting moment to me was when I think it was the banjo player came up to you and was like, hey, the way that you cooked that pork reminded me of this young family growing up who used to actually cook it the same way in burlap sacks and I haven't seen it since and Mm -hmm. then didn't somebody else come up and was like oh yeah I saw that too and it was like you know people of white backgrounds who were talking Mm -hmm. about 
stuff that they grew up with and they had no understanding or association where it came from. I mean, can you kind of talk about that and what that was? Sure. (laughs) Like people start testifying and I, I do these things to jog people's memories. Um, I want to hear from them. I want to learn from them. And I can show you a little bit of what I've gleaned and how I do it. But the most important thing is when a kid comes up to you and says, because, you know, I, I call kids the recorders. Sometimes adults and elders don't know all of what they're doing. They just are autopilot. And the kid notices all every little detail. So they're the recorders. And then come the archives. The archives are the elders. And then, you know, here come the accountants. The accountants the people who are in between. And they all have something important to say. But when white Southerners of a certain generation and age, you know, kind of report back on what they grew up with, in some ways it's a very powerful vindication of some of my research because they're able to tell me things from an outsider point of view in a certain, not quite totally objective way, but more objective than when it comes from within the community. And so, and oftentimes it's done with a lot of respect. I think that um, one of the misunderstandings people have had with my work is that I don't respect the white voice on African-American food. And there is a white voice. There is the white voice of the women in the cookbooks from the back of the day who talked, you know, who obviously owned these people, but had a certain reference the way they cooked for, you know, people who had respect for their servant class, but they were still a servant class. For people who loved and respected the woman who raised them and the men who raised them who were black and cooked in the kitchen and was more of a familial thing going on. To people who were just like, yeah, I've in the present day who are uh, my age and younger who talk about um, black domestics. You know, that's important. Or people they grew up with, their playmates, or houses they hung out with. That is, it's extremely important to African-American food history. And I don't want anybody to get it twisted. I, those voices are extremely important to me because I have, they give me um, not only a richer material, but a richer understanding. So when those gentlemen talked about, the, you know, barbecuing that goat and those hogs, and those sheep in Florida, or I think it was Florida and the Carolinas and Texas, where they came from, right? Um, they recorded a moment for me that otherwise I may never have known about. So those give us the opportunity to really sort of get into um, a bigger understanding of what barbecue is. I think barbecue tends to be canonized way too much. People are very certain that there are there are effortless facts about barbecue. Barbecue is this and only this. And that's how it works. I'm like, no, no, no. This, this, this institution has morphed and changed. And there's certain things that have died out because they were so local and so particular to a part of the country and and not really transferable to other areas you know how many how many of us do have known goat barbecue or tasted goat barbecue not many but that used to be a big thing on the edges of society in the south um so i think it's an opportunity to learn about traditions that we might want to go back to we might want to embrace because some of these heritage breeds that we have are only going to survive if we eat them. Same thing with the heirloom vegetables. So this is an opportunity to get those into those recipes and bring them forward. When are you going to put a dinner together where you're going to have 
people of different backgrounds sitting and talking, testifying, and you can put them all together and make oh, them talk. Oh, wow. <laughs> that would be... So, we, so, we're, so we're inching there, right? Stagville dinner and Asheville dinner. I guess it has to be in North Carolina now. I guess I'm going to have to have chain the governor down and make him sit near like 10 trans people. <laughs> um, um, no, that's Indiana, right? No, yeah. North Carolina right now. It's awful. It's like... And I feel bad about that because I love North Carolina and I think the people there are extremely um, modern, progressive, and this is scary. And I'm, I stand with them in their protest. But um, I, I think that's I think that's the goal, right? To sort of have the the video camera and the audio equipment running, and really let people have this long sort of like seder like discussion about where you know what how they fit into this mix. Um, it's unfortunate that people sometimes they don't understand like having discussions about difference um, does not curtail um, unity. We can be different and be unified. We can be unified but still maintain our own particular opinions and we can all be quote unquote right in our own reality and, and sense of self when it comes to food you know but for me I think that would be a capital moment when we could truly get everybody to the welcome table I think the welcome table has been sort of like misused it's like a it's like white southerner safety valve you know oh the welcome table when the when the when the controversy starts, Mm-mm. my ancestors gave white folks the welcome table, gave them an invitation. We give them an invitation to sit down the welcome table. The welcome table is a product of the spiritual and moral suasion of the black spiritual tradition. It is about social justice. It is about everybody having the courage to represent and come sit down as they are. And the welcome table is not a safety. It's not a place to go to when things get too hot on any sort of level. Race, gender, sexuality, class, um, politics, so on and so forth. And the welcome table should not, be appro- should not be appropriated. The welcome table should not be a safety. The welcome table should be an agreed upon goal that we should all sit down at the same table, um, secure in our narratives, but willing to learn and listen from each other. How do we do that, though, yeah. in reality? <laughs> That's the question. Um, you know what? You take a bunch of people and you put them outside their comfort zone and you force them to not be okay you force Southern discomfort on them. I mean, I could say that from the perspective of the plantation stuff I've done, but I could be even more uncomfortable. I could, you could always stand to be more uncomfortable. We all know this. We could always stand to be more awkward. I mean, what would it be like if you took like people who, I mean, the classic example is, is the poor black kids and the rich white folks. Well, like we, we, can do, we can do better than that. We can do other examples. What's it like to be Muslim in the South? Um, what's it like to be Latino 
in Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina. What's it like to be, you know, third or fourth generation Chinese in Mississippi and Tennessee? How do we like do like a a culture swap? I think that's I think that's my that's my you know dark, unfortunate fantasy is to take people out of their element. <laughs> yeah, can you cook in this community and eat in this community for like a day or, or day or three and survive? Are you really? Do you really think you know yourself that well? What would it be like to be in like an ultra orthodox kosher kitchen in Memphis? You know, would you be able to survive that? as a pork loving chef um, and not just chef, but culinarians of all types, food writers, community gardeners, farmers, all of us, you know, having to be uncomfortable and, you know, put me in an Appalachian community that has no black people since 1912. I'll be real uncomfortable. I'll, I assure you, but I'm also going to learn a lot and I'm also going to go immediately and go, Oh wow. That's like what grandma did. I'm going to be like, yeah, probably. And I'm like, how do you do it differently? So that's the first step. The next step is that we have to be willing to share the wealth. I know um, class equality and class issues are very touchy, but that's a huge part of why we still have these have these problems with each other across um, lines. I just put it like that lines because we have extremely lucrative pockets of the southern food industry. When I tell people about this, I'm saying to people, look. When it comes to food in America, can you name for me one Pacific Northwest food chain? Can you name for me one New England like food institution that you must go to? No. You know the South has fast food chains. The South has medium level food enterprises. The South has gourmet and high end local food enterprises and it's a billion dollar industry in some ways it's all the south has left the idea of selling itself you know where once upon a time it was all coal cotton tobacco now it's the only thing we have is the idea of who we think we are and if, if that's marketable and that's lucrative how come we still have gross inequality among um quote-unquote racial groups in the South? How come we still have, you know, substandard schools and schools that segregate based on class? You know, white kids go to the, the so-called academy. That's the, new, that's the new Brown versus the Board of Education right there. And the black kids are stuck in the public school with their poor white classmates and immigrants who are not getting a real education. Um, what does that mean 20 years later down the line? It means some of the same things perpetuated. And and we can't do that anymore. You know, we all have to rise up or, or we'll be right back to where we started um, from the get-go. So those are two big things. We have to kind of like swap and switch and really force each other to be uncomfortable and be outside of our comfort zones. But we also have to break these class walls down and how they work in terms of the food world in the South. Um, I need to say this. Solutions are, are not easily... Um, attained, but they're visible. When you see um, kids in Athens raising heirloom vegetables for gourmet restaurants, and we have white-owned restaurants, white chefs, but we have black and brown kids raising the produce, learning about, they're off the street, they're doing something, you know, meaningful, they're learning about patience and delayed gratification, which are, you know, 
not easy in any generation, but particularly since the, the age of the television and, and electronic devices. Um, where, you know, when you have Denzel Mitchells in Baltimore who were taking the African-American heirloom pepper, which I helped popularize called the fish pepper, then they turn that into hot sauce. Then they, you got to grow the peppers. You got to grow other stuff. You got to raise food in the inner city of Baltimore where the soil is not contaminated. But then you have communities where there's an actual farm in one of the most, you know, blighted and dangerous parts of America. When you have Will Allen's um, and you have in, Mo- in Milwaukee and you have, you know, folks in Detroit, chain, you know, making the land, making farming, making food. And Ron Finley, when you have all these men and women, Jenga Window in New Orleans, who are really pushing things forward, Matt Rayford in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, the, you know, raising food in the land, his great, great grandfather got after slavery and using that as an opportunity to educate people and um, raise crops that are tell our history and our story. This is happening right now. We have wonderful examples of culinary justice happening right now. But my question is, is the Southern food world willing to take a pause on um, the celebrity aspects, the, 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 the pomp and circumstance, and really focus on the least of these and how they're trying to climb out of you know, nutritional deficit, chronic health issues, poverty, etc., do we are we really going to be brave enough to really put our might and minds behind the people who are making a difference all across the South? When I travel the South, of the most important thing, and I still, of course, I still do it. Like that's my life now. Um, I never thought it would be, but it is. I keep seeing these projects, and I keep seeing these people. And I keep being inspired by them because they're working, and for the most part. We, we didn't beg nothing from nobody. We didn't ask anything from anybody. We did, we did for self. And that's part of the reason why you're not hearing about it in the mainstream is because we do have two separate and distinct media platforms. And one isn't hearing about the other. So I think the last part answer to your question is that we need to start having more communication so that we know what can be done, what works, and what doesn't. I love Ron Finley. <laughs> you know, he, when he says growing food is growing money, that's all you need to hear. When he says, you know, drive-bys aren't killing as many people as drive-throughs, that's all you need to hear. He tells the truth. Um, so we need, we need that in the South, definitely. So that wraps up my conversation with Michael Twitty. His book, The Cooking Gene, is set to be released later this year. So for more information about the book and to read Twitty's open letter to Sean Brock, visit Michael Twitty's website, afroculinaria.com. To read my profile of Michael Twitty, visit munchies.tv. On the next episode of Munchies, the podcast... Firstly, we have to acknowledge the fact that Texas is not part of the South. 
I talked to Austin's award-winning chefs Michael Fotage and Gray Nona Savolame, so check back in just two weeks for the latest installment. Until then, get all of our delicious Munchies content at munchies.tv. Peep us at Munchies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, too. Also, if you like the show, go rate us on iTunes. It really helps us out. Okay, I'm Helen Holliman. I'll catch you all real soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.